KPFK in Los Angeles, this is Living in the USA. I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Later in the hour, John Nichols will talk about Biden's big win in New Hampshire and Trump's furious victory speech after Nikki Haley announced she was staying in the race. But first, we're still thinking about the New Hampshire primary, first in the nation. For comment, we turn to Harold Meyerson. Of course, he's editor-at-large of The American Prospect. Harold, welcome back. Always good to be here, John. So to review, on the Republican side, Trump got 54%, Nikki Haley got 43%. Does that mean it's over? I think the short answer is yes. Like Ron DeSantis after Iowa, she put on something of a bull front and said she's going to go on. But I, I think it's going to be hard for her to raise money, and to, particularly when she finds out the entire Republican establishment, more or less, will have uh, cravenly caved to, to Trump and will be endorsing him. So, so like DeSantis, I mean, I think sort of the model for what we're seeing now uh, from Nikki Haley is sort of like those moments in the Roadrunner cartoons where Wiley e. Coyote runs off a cliff <laughs> And he can keep running so long as he doesn't look down. But the moment he looks down, he plummets. And I think that's going to, that was the trajectory of Ron DeSantis. And I'm afraid that's going to be the trajectory of Nikki Haley. One reason for hope. I'm always looking for hope here. 42% of Republican voters in New Hampshire said that if Trump is convicted of a crime, they will not vote for him. Uh, that's more than Iowa last week, where it was 32% of Iowa Republicans said they wouldn't vote for him if he was uh, convicted. Yeah, they, uh, these are flinty Yankees, you know, and the fact that they're in New Hampshire in the middle of a winter <laughs> gives them even, you know, more bad temper. And I, I think they're, you know, they're in the uh, tradition of, uh, of uh, New England's founding hanging judges. And there's enough of that there, I think, uh, that to explain the 10 point difference between New Hampshire and, and Iowa. Also, there's honestly, there's a lower concentration of evangelicals, which is really a political tribe more than it is any any religion. There aren't that many evangelicals in New England, and there are certainly more in the Republican Party in Iowa. Just getting back to Nikki Haley for a minute, you you wrote at the uh, at prospect.org, all she can do if she stays on the stump is to serve as an ineffectual wrecking ball clanging against the epistemologically closed wall of Trump supporters without making so much as a dent, close quote. That is a vivid image. Uh, well, that and uh, and the uh, Wiley Coyote running off a cliff. <laughs> I, I had to choose between, between them. So I saved Wiley Coyote for, uh, for uh, our, our, our talk, John. Great. Well, thank you for that. There was also a Democratic primary uh, in New Hampshire. You may recall Biden did not appear on the ballot. Two challengers did. Minnesota Congressman Dean Phillips ended up with about 20% of the vote. Marianne Williamson got only 5%. Biden got the rest, 75%, even though he didn't campaign there and his name did not appear on the ballot. Right. So New Hampshire shows a lot more support for Biden among Democrats than Trump has among Republicans. That's true. I mean, it was only really, you know, you had to be kind of the Democratic faithful to turn out for a write-in vote. 
But no, that was a clear demonstration of, of Biden's strength or of the fact that confronted with Dean Phillips and Marion Williamson, most people in New Hampshire said, ooh. <laughs> okay. Well, now it's time for news of the class struggle in America regular feature of this broadcast. We're speaking on Wednesday afternoon. I understand you've just returned from the UAW's National Political Conference. What happened there? Well, they uh, endorsed Joe Biden. The the UAW's uh, fighting president, Sean Fain, gave Joe Biden one hell of a rousing introduction, which was also one hell of an attack on Donald Trump. Uh, and got everyone standing on their feet. And then Joe Biden came out and actually gave a very good speech. I actually haven't seen Biden on the stump in a while. And I will say that in coming out to the stage, he looked really old. But once he started speaking, he was really quite fine. Uh, so I am, I am, you know, encouraged by that and, and hope that they can just sort of quickly lower him to the podium or whatever in, in, in future engagements and he can get right to the right to the speaking. Well, here in LA on the class struggle front, thousands of faculty members at California State University, the largest university system in the United States, walked off the job on Monday, the first day of spring semester classes for 450,000 students the staff who struck are part of the California Faculty Association Union, which represents 29,000 uh, professors, lecturers, librarians, counselors, and coaches on 23 campuses. And then came a big surprise. Instead of uh, five days of picketing, the union announced at the end of the first day that they'd reached an agreement, a tentative agreement with the university, called off the picket line, called off the strike, and uh, sent the uh, proposal to the uh, members for uh, for uh, a vote. So what does this tell us? Strikes work is, is, is what it tells us. And I, having just been, as I said, at the UAW conference for, for several days, actually, clearly the momentum that that union got in its uh, substantial strike uh, against uh, the big three auto companies uh, has really, you know, created a, a, a kind of uh, elan and esprit de corps and a militance, which it, you really haven't seen in too many American unions in a long time. And, and striking, if it comes out well, can really do that. And uh, I, you know, the, the speed with which Cal State uh, administrators uh, caved uh, is uh, is a for you know I, I think we should be one of the factors that really does bolster in this case faculty uh, spirit and and militants and uh, what the UAW kept saying or what Sean Fain kept saying is that you know we want to spread this across the working class which is easier said than done but it's been a while since a major union leader even voiced such expansive aspirations. So that, that too is a, is a sign of, uh, you know, maybe a better climate uh, for American workers, or at least a greater willingness to fight for that climate. And let's note that the uh, Cal State Union had been negotiating for months without any uh, progress, and one day of strike was all it took. Um, there, there was a second union that was about to go on strike, Teamsters. 1,100 plumbers, electricians, carpenters, they had planned to have a strike to coincide 
with the uh, faculty strike, but they reached a tentative agreement with the university management the day before the strike was uh, supposed to start and and called off their picket lines, called off their strike, uh, are now uh, voting on a new salary advancement system and better protection for their pensions. But there was uh, a day there where it looked like the Teamsters were were uh, undercutting the faculty union strike. Turned out it didn't, but that there was a few anxious moments there. Uh, there were, but you know, the Teamsters might have concluded, and I have no knowledge on this directly, might have concluded that, boy, these guys are really ready to cave. And having done that for us, uh, they, you know, they went and did it to the to the much larger number of striking faculty within 24 hours of uh, uh, their caving of the Teamsters. Having taken the measure of the uh, university administration, they maybe they figured, OK, these guys are just uh, mush. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> and then we have to talk about the L.A. Times. Um, last Friday, it had its first strike in history. Uh, more than 350 staff members, 90 percent of the union, uh, the union is the, the guild, uh, refused to work on Friday to protest pending cuts. The L.A. Times has been around for 115 years. I guess they've had good relations uh, with their unions uh, until last Friday. Not exactly. Uh, I'm, I'm an old Angelino, and all the time I was growing up, uh, the uh, masthead above the editorial page said the liberty under law, something or other. It was the second thing. And then the third line was true industrial freedom, which meant no goddamn unions. And there were no unions <laughs> during the hundred plus years that the Chandlers owned the paper or the years that Tribune owned the paper or the nightmarish few months that uh, Sam Zell owned the paper. And it's only in the last couple of years with the spate of unionization at, uh, of professionals at uh, media outlets and on campuses that the Times uh, has had a union too, which is part of the, the Newspaper Guild, which is part of the communication workers. The one-day strike at the Times was a protest against impending cuts, and the cuts indeed came at the beginning of this week. Something like 120 people have been laid off at the LA Times, about 20% of the newsroom. There's a lot of misery and anger at the LA Times this week, and also a certain amount of dissent within uh, the Guild. Uh, the Guild has been committed to protecting seniority, and of course, the younger workers uh, who are the basically the, the diverse employees, the people of color at the paper, were first in line to be uh, fired. Management, of course, wanted to get rid of the more expensive writers with seniority and editors with seniority. Um, so the union contracts, this is hardly unique to the Guild. They always protect more senior staff members from layoffs why is it that seniority really is is sacred for unions facing cutbacks well a couple of points first these are the people who've been paying union dues the longest they are the loyalists they stuck with the union in theory you know through uh, good times and bad and 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 all of that now of course the union at the times as i pointed out has only been there a couple of years Secondly, during most of the history of unions in the United States, certainly up through 
the 1930s and then it divides. You know, the unions were essentially all white unless they were sleeping car porters, in which case they were all black. Unions only became racially diverse first in the industrial unions of the CIO, which were the first unions to welcome minority members in varying degrees. Uh, The old AFL unions didn't. And then it's, you know, only in the last several decades where the hires have been mainly minority. So you have this decades, centrally long tradition, really, of uh, uh, going by seniority when that really had no racial dimension because everyone was white. Uh, And it's still in there now that, uh, you know, disproportionately the newer hires are, are people of color. And so uh, you know, it it now has an effect which it didn't necessarily have for the history of most of the long-lived unions. Then there's also some news from the LA hotel workers strike, which we've been following for months, led by Unite Here Local 11. Another significant victory, the Fairmont Miramar in Santa Monica became the 25th hotel to sign uh, with the union uh, last Monday, this is the high-profile hotel in Santa Monica where Wilshire Boulevard meets Ocean Avenue, and it's the site of some of the biggest and noisiest picket lines and, and demonstrations. But there's still a lot of hotels that have not signed. Right. Um, most of the hotels at this juncture that have not signed are owned by, you know, uh, uh, hotel groups uh, that are, uh, you know, historically... Uh, you know, non-union, they might have bought the chain when it was already unionized and they haven't figured out a way to get rid of the unions. Uh, But most of, I mean, it's funny, most of the real marquee hotels in LA at this juncture, I think, that that were struck have settled. The the Fairmont Miramar has an interesting history as a marquee hotel. It was throughout the presidency of Bill Clinton, it was where, unless he was bunking with a friend like Ron Burkle, Uh, It was where he would always stay. So there was a bit of a democratic connection to the Fairmont Miramar. It was also long ago a place where various left-wing Los Angeles groups held events. So, you know, it was goddamn about time for the Fairmont Miramar to to settle with the union. And uh, elsewhere in California, news of the class struggle, Tesla workers at Fremont in, in the East Bay got a pay raise uh no details about how much the company and elon musk are calling it a market adjustment is that what you'd call it it is entirely a reaction to the pay raise that the uaw won at ford gm and stellantis uh and in this the tesla is following the lead of the southern uh based factories of uh, uh global companies of Nissan and uh, and uh, Mercedes and Volkswagen, uh, you know, that also raise their wages when the UAW, uh, you know, won its strike. Now, today, shortly before Joe Biden accepted uh, the endorsement of the UAW on the stage at uh, the UAW's National Political Conference were four workers from the Volkswagen plant where yeah. the... Uh, uh, the union uh, is now got an organizing campaign and 30% of the workers there uh, signed union affiliation cards in one week. Uh, so that's a good sign. I mean, they need to get a lot more than 30%, but that's a good sign. And it's clearly the main goal 
right now, along with electing Joe Biden of the UAW, is, is unionizing the many non-union auto plants in the United States. Uh, we've also been following the Starbucks workers' efforts to organize over the last year or two. The, a case about organizing Starbucks workers is going to the Supreme Court, which agreed last Friday to hear a case brought by Starbucks challenging a union victory. This was in Memphis, where a federal judge ordered the company to reinstate seven employees who had been fired for organizing the union there. The, the company's opponent in this case that's going to the Supreme Court is the National Labor Relations Board, not the union. And, then, and the NLRB had tried to persuade the court to stay out of the case. What's this about? Well, traditionally, uh, under the uh, miserable uh, particulars of the much amended and much uh, uh, subverted labor law, uh, when management fires workers in a uh, union uh, campaign, which is nominally against the law, but it takes years for the workers either to get their job back or to get a pittance of the pay they didn't get or whatever. Now, in this case, because of a new Biden-appointed pro-worker NLRB, they decided to get a court injunction, uh, which has not been standard operating procedure in labor relations, uh, you know, which is one one reason again why it's so hard to unionize, uh, and so Starbucks uh, elected to challenge uh, to challenge this in the uh, hope and expectation that the anti-union profile of the current Supreme Court, uh, led by uh, Justice Sam Alito, who was born to hate unions, apparently, <laughs> uh, will uh, sustain their position that they can't get. Uh, like, you know, that this injunction is not, uh, you know, it will not sit well with the court. And, you know, but this is this is a function of the more pro-worker pro NLRB, which is why they are the opposing party here uh, that, uh, uh, you know, is a result of the appointments Joe Biden made. One last thing. We need to talk briefly about uh Israel's war in Gaza and efforts in Congress to do something to bring about a ceasefire. Last week, the Senate defeated a measure introduced by Bernie Sanders that would have made military aid to Israel conditional on whether the Israeli government is violating human rights in its war on the people of Gaza. Uh, the vote was 72 against, 11 in favor this resolution did not cut the funding for Israel's war in Gaza. As Bernie said in his speech on the floor of the Senate, quote, this is a simple request for information. It does not alter aid to Israel in any way. It simply requests a report on how US aid is being used. It's frankly hard for me to understand why anyone would oppose it, close quote. But 72 senators did. Uh, the 11 senators who back this resolution, let me just name, name them since they are, uh, they are now heroes of ours. Uh, Rand Paul of Kentucky, LaFonza Butler of California, who's leaving the Senate a, a year from now, Elizabeth Warren, Jeff Merkley of Oregon, Ed Markey of Massachusetts, Ben Ray Lujan of New Mexico, Maisie Hirono of Hawaii, Chris Van Holland of Maryland, Peter Welch of Vermont, Martin Heinrich of New Mexico, 
Bernie Sanders of Vermont, the only 11 that asked for more information about whether Israel was violating human rights in its uh, war in Gaza. Wonder if you have any comment. Well, clearly 11 is nowhere near enough. I'd also point out that last week, 15 Jewish Democrats in the House issued a statement condemning uh, the Netanyahu government for opposing a two-state solution, which obviously, you know, has been this, the policy that the uh, American government has basically uh, promoted uh, since the, uh, you know, at least since Bill Clinton took office uh, uh, more than 30 years ago. Uh, and that included some longtime, you know, complete Israel loyalist APAC defenders like uh, the San Fernando Valley's uh, Brad Sherman. You know, there is enough, uh, you know, weakening of Jewish support, to put, put this specifically, uh, for the, the war in Gaza now, that there is political space for more of these senators uh, to begin to move on this. And there's political space for Joe Biden to move on this. You know, I mean, Joe Biden is in this dynamic with Bibi, where, you know, we keep hearing, oh, we're influencing the Israeli government to cut back on mass bombardment and this and that. It doesn't really seem to be happening. And in a sense, I, I get it, it, it. Bibi is apparently now sort of, I think, jerking Biden around, or at least giving the appearance of jerking Biden around, much as Joe Manchin did on domestic issues in, in 2021 and 2022. I don't think that's an image that's doing Joe Biden any favors. And having our aid to Israel be unconditional is really not doing not just Gaza and the Palestinians, but Israel and the Middle East and America and Biden's electoral prospects not are not being getting any favor uh, either uh, from the current policy of unconditional support. Harold Meyerson, read him at prospect.org. Harold, thanks for talking with us today. Always good to be here, John. the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. The first primary election of the season was Tuesday in New Hampshire for comment. We turn, of course, to John Nichols. He's national affairs correspondent for The Nation and author of many books. Most recently, It's Okay to Be Angry About Capitalism, co-authored by Bernie Sanders. John, welcome back. Well, it's good to be with you after the first New Hampshire primary in a decade that wasn't won by Bernie Sanders. <laughs> Fantastic way to start here. Well, for Republicans, the first primary of 2024 was also the last chance to really stop Trump. It was all up to Nikki Haley. The old guard of the Republican Party of New Hampshire rallied around her. The governor supported her. The Republican former senator supported her. The biggest newspaper supported her. Ron DeSantis dropped out. Uh, she was hoping independents would vote in the Republican Party against Trump, which they are allowed to do. In the end, Trump got 54%. Nikki Haley got 43%. What does that mean? Is the race over? Pretty close. <laughs> it's not quite over because uh, Nikki Haley has decided that she's going to fight on. And 
as long as the Koch brothers and their network of donors are willing to continue to fund her uh, for whatever reason, whether they want to simply weaken Trump and they think the best way to do so is with an ongoing Republican primary challenge, or whether they genuinely are delusional enough to think she could win the nomination, doesn't much matter. If they keep giving her money, she'll keep running. Uh, what that means is that she'll head out, they'll probably take a little shot at Nevada, which she'll go, won't go very far in. Um, then she'll head to South Carolina, which is probably, not certainly, but probably where the Haley campaign ends. Uh, because uh, though she is the former governor of South Carolina and has a lot of roots there, it, the the infrastructure of uh, South Carolina Republican politics is almost entirely united against her. They're, they're literally aggressively campaigning against her. And uh, South Carolina is a very strong Trump state. So bottom line is uh, that Nikki Haley went to the state that was her best chance. And she got pretty much every break she could get. The other candidates got out of the race. She did get the New the Manchester Union leader endorsement, which is of some consequence, although it came very late. Um, and then she had the governor literally driving her around the state, the other people. And, and a lot of crossover. I think there was a tremendous amount of crossover, but it just wasn't sufficient. She didn't hit that John McCain sweet spot from 2000 or 2008. And so as a result, she comes out of New Hampshire with a loss, pretty significant loss, and very little to build upon going forward. But isn't it true that Trump would have been an overwhelming favorite to win the nomination, even if he lost in New Hampshire? The Nikki Haley's base of support in the Republican Party is moderate and highly educated voters who we know are a, a shrinking part of the Republican Party today. Right. Look, uh, as I said, New Hampshire was her best state. I mean, not just her best state for this early stage of the process. If you looked nationwide and you said, well, what's the state where, where if everything fell in place, Nikki Haley had her best chance of winning a primary? It was New Hampshire, without a doubt. And pretty much everything fell in place for her. And yet, uh, I think this tells you something profound about where the Republican Party is. And that is that uh, the base of the Republican Party is a Trump party. It's Trump's party. And there was enough of them, a sufficient number of them, to uh, get him a victory, even when everything was sort of stacked up in Nikki Haley's favor in that state. Um, and so she's not going to get a better deal than that anyplace else. And so what we come away from New Hampshire with is this. Donald Trump's grip on the Republican Party is as firm as it has ever been. However, there is some evidence that his appeal to independence may actually be less than it's ever been. And so the, the numbers out of New Hampshire are not very good for Nikki Haley, but perhaps very good for Joe Biden. Hmm. Well, Nikki Haley is perceived as the representative of the pre-Trump old guard corporate Republican Party. Is that the right way to understand her? Pretty much, yes. It, it pretty much is. Look, Nikki Haley is a um, a polite, extreme right-wing <laughs> corporate conservative, right? Okay. Um, whereas uh, Donald Trump is an impolite, extreme right-wing corporate conservative. They're, they're not that far apart on the issues. The one thing that's striking about Nikki Haley is she is undoubtedly more anti-union than Donald Trump. <laughs> uh, and 
and probably a little bit more firm on some of these social issues than Trump is. So it's there's an argument to be made that she was to the right of Trump. Hmm. However, um, her long-term uh, willingness to do the bidding of the the biggest corporations and the biggest donors uh, is really what's defined her throughout her career. There's there's very little evidence that she is you know a, a particularly interesting political player. She's not a, a Rand Paul you know, or somebody like that. She is, you know, essentially a a corporate conservative um, who, you know, got the lucky break of being the last person standing against Trump and thus could get support from some people who were more moderate than she is. But you um, voted for her in November, a lot of them. uh, You wrote in The Nation that she missed her best chance to take on Trump and she actually could have done better. Uh, How so? There's absolutely no question she could have done better. Look, um, Trump panicked, uh, as he often does in the late stages of the New Hampshire fight. And as Ron DeSantis stepped out of the running, as Chris Christie stepped out, it was clear we were getting a one-on-one between Trump and Nikki Haley. Um, Trump's response to that was to do what he does, which is to go uh, toward racism and xenophobia. And he started attacking Nikki Haley by uh, you know, misstating her name, emphasizing her her birth name, which is Nimrata, uh, emphasizing the fact that she is the child of immigrants, even going so far as to suggest that she might not be qualified to be president of the United States because she was the child of immigrants. And so he did to her everything that he did to Barack Obama. And this is his, his old move. It's it's a it's a you know approach that he does politically. Haley had a chance to call him out on it, to say, look, you know, Donald Trump is doing the same thing he's done year after year, campaign after campaign. And notably, we've been on a losing streak since 2018 as a Republican Party. This Trump approach is a bad approach. It narrows what this party should be. And she could have ripped into him in a really strong way, which I think would have maybe not moved too many Republicans. But I think it might have brought more independence into that primary and more kind of, you know, moderate types into the primary. And she might have really bumped her her numbers, uh, I, I think, maybe not to a winning level, but she probably could have closed the gap a good deal more if she had run a courageous campaign, which she did not. Our colleague at The Nation, Joan Walsh, uh, wrote that Nikki Haley is hanging on in case Trump unravels. If Trump were to be convicted before the convention or if he had some kind of health issues, um, you think that's... Uh, a, a real possibility here? How are you going to know when Trump has unraveled? I mean, you know, <laughs> where, where is the measure of that in our American <laughs> politics? I mean, look, the fact of the matter is Trump has unraveled again and again and again, yeah. right? And the Republican base has stuck with him. Uh, obviously, Joan is brilliant. And what she's suggesting is that the, the, the 1% chance, right? This is the Cheney model, you know, 1%, you go for it, right? This is the 1% chance that Trump really does, uh, you know, just, you know, either get massively convicted very, very quickly, which I, I'm not necessarily thinking that's going to happen. Uh, but that would be significant, uh, because the polling suggests that there's a lot of people that would move away from him if he was convicted, or if he has some sort of huge health problem of, of yeah. some kind. Uh, I just don't, you know, there's people who've been anticipating that might happen for a long time. Doesn't seem to be where Trump is headed. I think it is true that Haley got some traction with questioning uh, whether he's unbalanced and, and or maybe whether he's kind of losing it. Yeah, and that may that may have some reality, but that's not going to 
the swing the Republican base voters. So I think that what we're looking at is that Haley will hang on on the outside chance. It's not so much that Trump falls apart, that that somehow um, a primary comes where she can actually like score a surprise. Right. And that that does happen now and again in politics. I just don't think it's going to happen for Nikki Haley. My sense is that before Super Tuesday, it's very likely she'll be out of this race. Well, you and I have you and I have talked uh, a couple times about reasons for hope, not optimism, but hope. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned uh, the the exit poll results uh, about the question of if Trump were convicted of a crime, would you still uh, vote for him? Forty two percent of Republican voters in New Hampshire said that if he's convicted of a crime, they will not vote for him. Now, nobody can be elected if 42% of their supporters don't vote for them. So uh, that I consider that a reason for hope. Well, it's, it's an interesting thing. And remember, uh, a lot of those aren't really Trump supporters. Those are independents who came over, right? These are yeah. Republican primary yeah. voters. So, um, but what it does mean is that independents are, there's some pretty good evidence that they, they may break more for Biden. There was also another figure in that poll. I think it was 38% said that, that uh, Trump would be an unsatisfying or unacceptable nominee. Uh, if you've got more than a third of the people voting in your primary saying, you know, this guy's unacceptable, that's a very, very, very good number for the for the other party. Now, Biden's got to be smart in how he approaches that and how he reaches out to that. And he's got plenty of challenges ahead of him. But um, I'll tell you, when I looked at, at the exit polling from New Hampshire, my takeaway from it was that Biden's got a very good chance of winning what is a swing state. Well, let's talk about the Democrats. Uh, there was a Democratic primary. Biden opted to keep his name off the ballot. The ballot did list two significant challengers, Minnesota Congressman Dean Phillips and Marianne Williamson. And as you wrote at thenation.com, anti-war activists campaigned to send Biden a message about Gaza by writing in the word ceasefire uh, in the write-in space on their ballots, seeking to pressure the administration to shift its policy. Uh, Dean Phillips looks like he's gonna get about 20% of the vote. Marianne Williamson, something like 5%. Uh, you you wrote at the, the nation.com on Wednesday morning, Biden might have had the best night of all in New Hampshire, even though he didn't campaign and did not appear on the ballot. Please explain. That's right. Um, yeah, they're still counting the uh, what are referred to as the unprocessed write-in votes. So we don't know exactly what vote Biden got. Yeah, um, let me say we're recording this on Wednesday at midday. Right. And, and you know, reasonably soon they'll get a, a clear figure. But it's clear he's already gotten a percentage that is, you know, it's in the 50s, in the mid-50s. And, um, and I think that when I look at the numbers that are still out, there's a reasonable chance that he could get to where NBC is suggesting he'll end up, which is someplace around you know, mid 60s, maybe even two thirds of the vote. If he gets that, um, that's a very substantial win. That is, uh, yeah, a portion of people didn't vote for him, but they didn't vote particularly for anybody else, right? They had 20% for Phillips. That's, that's you know, a, a credible finish, but not, but he's still being beaten, you know, by a pretty overwhelming margin, five to one. Um, Marianne Williamson, who ran a very um, sincere campaign in the state and really did, can't, you know, hit a lot of towns, made, put a lot of effort in, uh, that 5% is, is got to be disappointing for her. 
And I think when I look at the outstanding uh, write-in votes, it looks to me like there's probably about 5%, maybe 4 or 5% for ceasefire. So end of the day, Biden's got a very strong number. And this is for somebody who wasn't on the ballot, who didn't campaign in the state, and who really basically insulted the state by saying, you know, we're going to take you out of the primary schedule. And yet, yeah, you know, I want to talk vote. about that. I want to talk about that. How come Biden did not want to appear on the first primary ballot in the nation, which we've always, you know, been obsessed with, the New Hampshire yeah. primary? Well, I don't know that Biden was particularly afraid of New Hampshire this time. Uh, they may have been. Look, historically, he's done poorly in the state. I mean, it is he, his numbers there were really bad four years ago. He, I think he came in fifth. And um, so New Hampshire's never been a state that he's been overly close to politically, uh, whereas South Carolina is. And South Carolina saved him in the 2020 race. Um, I think he wanted to reward South Carolina. I think he sincerely believes that the primary process should begin in a more diverse state than New Hampshire. That's that's a very legitimate uh, argument. And there's, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, but he for whatever reason, he made the choice to to affirmatively seek to get New Hampshire out of its first place position on the primary schedule. New Hampshire uh, said, no, we will not. We're not going to go along with that. We're still going to schedule a primary. So Biden was put in a very difficult position. I went up to New Hampshire. I talked to uh, New Hampshire Democrats and they were really furious. They were very, very mad about this. And I think there was a fear that that, you know, Biden could really underperform there. But a group of New Hampshire Democrats, uh, former chair uh, Kathy Sullivan, some other folks, as well as some national figures, particularly Ro Khanna, decided that they were just going to go into New Hampshire and, and build up a, a write-in campaign. And it looks like it, you know, it, it worked. Now, maybe you could tell yourself Joe Biden is just super popular and he would have gotten those votes anyway. But I suspect the reality is that um, some people in New Hampshire saved Biden from himself, you know, <laughs> and, and got him a good finish. Uh, and that that is important because I think it does translate to the November race in that state and maybe other states. So um, Biden played a dangerous game here, uh, but came out probably in the best possible result that there could be for him, a good solid win in New Hampshire. And then he goes on to, you know, ultimately to to South Carolina, where things will formally begin, uh, undoubtedly with a an even bigger win for him. You mentioned uh, that Ro Khanna uh, campaigned for the Biden write-in campaign. You uh, interviewed Ro Khanna, California uh, progressive congressman from the Bay Area, uh, Silicon Valley. He Ro Khanna told you Joe Biden should not be skipping New Hampshire, yep. and a lot of people uh, uh, agreed with that. What what's the argument here? Well, I mean, the argument is that the best argument for New Hampshire is that it's where the media tends to go, right? And the Republicans were going to go there anyway. And so it's going to be high profile. And New Hampshire isn't going to cancel its primary just because the Democratic National Committee doesn't want them to have one. So all of those things are there. And then there's the, the final thing is that um, in the test between New Hampshire and South Carolina, as an example, South Carolina is not a November swing state. New Hampshire is. And so, uh, you know, look, if this was, if the suggestion was, oh, we're going to move the first primary to Michigan, New Hampshire have very few legs to stand on, right? It wouldn't, wouldn't be yeah. very, very good. But in South Carolina, that thing is, you know, Biden will win the primary in South Carolina, but he will almost certainly lose in November. The reverse is in New Hampshire, um, he has a real November race there. And New Hampshire has mattered in November politics. I'll remind you that if New Hampshire had voted for Al Gore in 2000, 
he would have had sufficient electoral votes so that Florida wouldn't have mattered. Al Gore yeah. would have been president of the United States. Yeah. And so when you play political games with New Hampshire, uh, you do run risks. South Carolina's uh, primary isn't until February 24th. That's a month. It's going to be a long month for Nikki Haley, but it's also going to be a long month for Donald Trump, don't you think? Oh, yeah. Uh, it's going to drive Trump nuts. It already is. Uh, Trump's, I would invite people, you know, as much as I think you should get all your information from John Wiener's podcast, of course. <laughs> but, but, but if on the chance you wanted to watch anything else, I'd invite people to watch Trump's victory speech. And I put quotation marks around the word victory because I don't think I've ever seen a speech like that. He was, I, I've never seen a winner who was so angry. <laughs> um, he was just furious at Nikki Haley for remaining in the race. He devoted much of his speech to attacking her, even though she had lost. And then he, he actually just to put an exclamation mark on it, brought up uh, Vivek Ramaswamy to, to attack her some more. And and so at the end of the day, uh, uh, Trump is, for better or worse, even though Nikki Haley is not that good a candidate and not not doing all that well she sort of lives inside his head and uh as long as she's in the race uh yeah it'll it'll frustrate him and he will probably say and do things that are even more outrageous than some of what he said and did in new hampshire john nichols read him at the nation.com john thanks for talking with us today pleasure to be with you same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Now, from the archives, an interview we recorded in April 2021 with Senator Maisie Hirono. She's the only immigrant currently serving in the Senate, and she was the first Asian American woman elected to that office back in 2013. She serves on the Judiciary Committee, also the Energy and Natural Resources Committee, and others. And she's the author of a wonderful new autobiography. It's called Heart of Fire, An Immigrant Daughter's Story. Senator Maisie Hirono, it's an honor and a pleasure to say welcome to the program. Same here. Aloha, John. Well, before we talk about your book and your life, I'd like to talk just for a minute about the filibuster. Every week on this show, we talk about legislation that won't become law unless we have the filibuster reform. I know you're in favor of filibuster reform, but a couple of your Democratic colleagues don't seem to be. Kirsten Cinema and Joe Manchin, what can you tell us about efforts to move them to change their positions? As Democrats, I know the bottom line for both Kirsten and Joe is that they want to actually get things done for the people as opposed to screwing them over. And so at some point when all of these bills, including the infrastructure bill, the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, the George Floyd police reform and the gun legislation, when all these things fall by the wayside, they will come to the conclusion that we need filibuster reform. And in fact, I think I, I, I heard Joe Manchin talk about supporting a talking filibuster. So I hope he's still open to that idea. Because if that's what we're going to start with, then sure, make the people who don't want these bills to be passed stand there and keep talking about why they're against the bill. 
You served on the Judiciary Committee when Brett Kavanaugh was rammed through. I know you walked out of one of the hearings in in protest along with Kamala Harris and a couple of other people. Why was that? Well, that was when uh, the chairman uh, Chuck Grassley decided that he just wanted to bring the whole matter to a vote. And we were not through, the Democrats anyway, we were not through with uh, what we wanted to call forth. And so as he was trying to bang the gavel, Kamala and I, so the, there are three of us, Kamala, Cory Booker and I, we're, we're the people of color on that committee. And we all sit together, not because we're people of color, but we're the sort of the least senior people. So we often communicate non-verbally. And when that was beginning to happen, Kamala and I looked at each other and without saying anything, we both got up and left. And I said to Corey, are you coming? And he said, <laughs> I have my remarks against all of this. I have to give it. I said, we said, okay, well, all right then. But he, otherwise he would have come with us. We walked out and it's eventually what led to the so-called FBI uh, additional investigation, which was a sham. And then when it came to the confirmation vote for Amy Coney Barrett on the Senate floor, what did you say? I walked up to the clerk and I, it was an exclamation point to my no vote. I said, hell no. Hell no. Yeah, hell no. <laughs> so now uh, President Biden has appointed a commission to consider expanding the Supreme Court. The Constitution says the number of justices is decided by a majority vote of Congress. It's been changed many times. Are you in favor of expanding the court beyond the current nine? Oh, I am in favor of court reform. And I think his commission is going to review what needs to happen. I don't know that they're going to suggest expanding the court, but we now have basically a 63 very ideologically identifiable court, Supreme Court. And that is not good. If you can read a case and be able to determine that it was written by a bunch of conservative, ideologically driven people, that means that they're not using the facts or, or, or the relevant cases. So that's not good for our country. So that's what's happening. And I think we need to provide balance to that court. It could mean cycling circuit court judges through the court. I'm, I'm totally open to that. And the term limits. I mean, I don't see why anybody should have lifetime appointments to anything. But unfortunately, putting in term limits will not affect the people who are already on the court. So you might have to do more than one thing. Okay, let's talk about your book, Heart of Fire, and the amazing story of your life. You were born on a rice farm in Japan in 1947. Of course, this is after the end of the war. You did not move to Hawaii until you were seven. Please explain how that happened. My mother was married to a person who was both a compulsive gambler and an alcoholic. So he was he certainly didn't take care of the family. It was an abusive situation with her in-laws uh, living, living all together. She was uh, treated like a slave. Uh, my father, by the way, never showed that he was, he had these compulsions and, and all of that. So my mother uh, knew she made a horrible marriage and it, uh, uh, at one point she decided she had to get away from him completely. Women in Japan don't do that. <laughs> they, they just kind of gum on. There's a phrase, you know, you just kind of stick it out. But my mother um, was born in Hawaii. So she had dual citizenship and she decided that uh, very courageously, uh, to bring her children, who never knew anything about Hawaii or America, and she brings us to our to this country so that we could have a chance at a better life, a chance we would never have had in Japan. Well, of course, you came from a traditional Japanese culture where women stayed very much out of the public. 
your book has a photo of your mother walking a union picket line in the 1950s during an organizing campaign at the Honolulu Advertiser. I think you were in high school at the time. So I think my first question should be not how did you become a public person and an activist, but how did your mother do it? Oh, my mother was a great believer in workers. And so uh, she, we actually entered the middle class when my mother's workplace became unionized. And so she marched, she held the picket sign because she believed that that's, uh, that's what she should do. And so, yes, I watched a mother who was very determined and without having to be very noisy about it. And she just took control of her situation and her life. And I learned a lot from that. She did not sit me down and say, here are my life's lessons. She just showed me by how she conducted herself. In your book, you talk about being an anti-war activist during the Vietnam War. You were a student at the University of Hawaii in Manoa. You still remember a sign from a campus sit-in. What did it say? We won't fight a rich man's war. Wow. And why did that make such a big impression on you? Well, it's the first time that I had ever questioned my government. And I wasn't even one of the leaders of the anti-war movement, but it was enough to open my eyes to uh, question government, to march. It was a revelation to me that we could do that. And, and so whenever I hear the song that we shall overcome, it's a civil rights as well as an anti-war song. It still brings goosebumps and it takes me back to that time. It's one of the reasons we have uh, we don't have the draft anymore and, and so many things that came out of that hor- horrible time. The New York Times did a photo portrait of you in 2018 and asked you to bring an artifact that had special meaning for you. What did you bring? I brought a copy of Betty Friedan's Feminine Mystique. I read that book in college. And while I was raised in a very non-traditional kind of a way with a different background, I still had taken on some of the expectations of the dominant culture, which was I should get married and have children. I read that book in college and suddenly a light bulb went on in my head. And I thought, why am I even thinking that some guy is going to come and take care of me? I've never experienced that in my entire life. So I I sort of set that aside and, and that book really opened my eyes. But Despite your anti-war activism and your feminist consciousness, you spent decades in public life as what you call a polite and reserved person. Today, however, you are fierce and outspoken. What happened? I was always a very determined person, and there would be times when I would be very terse and very, um, very clear in my time in politics, but I never had to have a sort of the sustained vocalization of how uh, how I disagree with things. But believe me, the Trump presidency uh, made that a necessity because one thing I can't stand is a bully. And Trump was the biggest bully of them all. And at one point, uh, much as I was not comfortable talking to the national media, um, I began to talk to them. And the first time I stepped up to a whole bunch of them with all their mics arrayed, and I said, you know, we, he's a liar, he's a misogynist, an admitted sexual predator, and he should just resign. I think I caught the national press people by surprise, too, because it's like, oh, my gosh, she speaks. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so there, there's no going turning back, though. 
And it was always in me. I just didn't have to be so vocal about things. But uh, the the Trump presidency was so terrible in so many harmful ways that um, there was no going back. And I speak very plainly, as you know. I don't sugarcoat things, and I don't do what I call the Senate speak because I never learned how to do that. I do admire my colleagues who are really ripped. They can, they're so, you know, adept and all that. No, I, I basically tend to keep my sentences short and I just get up there and sometimes I swear because as I say, Trump was so horrible that if you were not uh, moved to swearing once in a while, you're not paying attention. <laughs> so it's very freeing to become more myself. Yeah. <laughs> The last chapter of your book deals with your experience during the storming of the Capitol on January 6th. Of course, you were in the Senate chamber voting on the Electoral College uh, reports. Tell us about what that day was like for you. It was an an amazing thing to be rushed out of the Senate chambers. um, I, I saw the vice president being rushed out. We weren't really sure what was happening. And when we were in our safe area, we didn't know what was going on outside until they brought the TV cameras in. And it was shocking and astounding to see the storming and the siege of our capital uh, and, to, and to realize that the, these rioters were very serious. I, I knew that if they caught any one of us, uh, they, we, we would have been harmed. And when I saw the images of what was going on in the U.S. House and my friends hunkered down, on the, on the, it was just horrifying. And yet we couldn't get this guy convicted of uh, you know, an insurrection. And uh, in fact, eight of your colleagues in the Senate continued afterwards when you finally went back to complete the day's work Eight of them voted to reject votes of the Electoral College and, and prevent Joe Biden from taking office despite what had happened. You see these people virtually every day. What is that like for you? It's not as though I have a lot of uh, interactions with them. Although for a while, um, uh, when Ted Cruz chaired the subcommittee on the Constitution and I was the ranking member, so he would have these hearings and I would need to show up and I would have these <laughs> exchange verbal exchanges with them i didn't put it in the book but there there was an interview that i did where someone asked me so what you know what would you say and basically i'm just basically f you kind of thing (laughs) because he deserved it okay we won't go there but uh, it's not easy but why what what am i supposed to say to them how could you vote to kick off millions of people off of healthcare just like that without a second thought how could you not hold this president responsible for an incitement to an insurrection where people die you know these are not the kind of conversations i can have because they do and did what they did and they continue to push the big lie where hundreds and hundreds of voter suppression bills are being considered by states all across the country so the, the big lie is still perpetuating that the country is still divided in ways that are so harmful. We at least now have a president who cares, who will take responsibility to gain control of the pandemic, who uh, will look at facts to make decisions, which is a huge sea change compared to the narcissistic, petty, vindictive, spoiled brat that used to be there. Senator Maisie Hirono. Her wonderful new book is Heart of Fire, An Immigrant Daughter's Story. Senator, 
Thanks so much for talking with us Thank today. Thank you very much. I enjoyed talking with you. Everyone, aloha. Stay safe. Be kind. <laughs> That's it for today's Living in the USA. Our social media maven is Renee Reynolds. KPFK's programming traffic director is Matt Perez. Thanks as always to Rye Cooter for our theme music Mambo Sinuendo. Living in the USA is recorded and produced at our Blythe Avenue studios in Los Angeles. If you miss part of this show or any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at livingintheusapod.com. I'm John Wiener. We'll be back next week talking about politics, thinking about the left, and living in the USA. Music